Welcome everyone. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening, the opportunity we have to return to our study of 1 Corinthians. Uh, thank you for the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. And uh, we know that this is how you speak to us in our day and age. And so we pray that you'll help us to pay careful attention and give us grace to be obedient to what you command and what you ask us to do. Thank you, Father, for uh, our class members, and we pray your blessing upon each one and our, your blessing upon our class tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at chapter 12, and we just got started with that last week, and uh, that was Spiritual Gifts, chapters 12 through 14. And I read the introduction there a little bit. And I was trying to say there that the problem is an abuse of tongues. Um, Paul, they, the, the Corinthians are overemphasizing tongues, the gift of tongues. And Paul is going to argue that that is incorrect. When he has these list of gifts, tongues is always at the end of it. He, 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 wants to, he doesn't want to elevate it to the greatest, not the greatest gift, not the most important gifts. It's a gift. Uh, and so their passion for tongues at Corinth is overdone. Um, so... Uh, We'll see how that works as we go through here. So we're looking at just the introduction here, which entitled The Test of the Spirit, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And I say here, at first glance, these opening verses would seem to be unrelated, even that topic, The Test of the Spirit, to this issue of tongues. Uh, but it, Paul intends it to set the stage for what follows. His initial concern is to set their former experience as idolaters in contrast with their present experience as Christians who speak by the Spirit of God. So he says in verse 1, Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed since you know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. I say here in verse 1, Paul says he doesn't want the Corinthians to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. Verse 2 expands the point by indicating that before they were saved, the ignorance of the Corinthians was profound. They were, they were idolaters. So this chapters 12 and 13 is designed to correct their general ignorance about the proper role and function of spiritual gifts in the church. So verse 3, therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. So Paul does not want the Corinthians to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. He will now make known to them the truth about spiritual gifts. They think that one's exercise of spiritual gifts, particularly the gift of tongues, makes one a real Christian. The truth is, as Paul will explain in 4 through 11, 
There's a great deal of diversity in the church when it comes to spiritual gifts, and to exalt tongues about other gifts is a serious error. The important distinction that one can draw is between the believer and the unbeliever, between those who have the Spirit and those who don't have the Spirit, what they say about Jesus. To be able to attest that Jesus is Lord implies one confess that the Jesus of the Incarnation, Cross, and Resurrection is truly the Lord. Such a person demonstrates that they have experienced the powerful, transforming work of the Holy Spirit. The question of who is spiritual must begin with who has Christ. To put the matter another way, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, they don't, have, they don't belong to Christ, Romans 8 9. If one belongs to Christ, then one is spiritually gifted. I mean, obviously one can say, anybody can say Jesus is Lord, but he means it in the sense of a genuine sense. To really say it and believe it, to believe that, really means you must really have the Spirit of God. You'd have to be regenerate to really believe that fully and truthfully. I say here is apparently, as is sometimes the case, some in Corinth wish to argue that the possession of spiritual gifts, especially tongues, is a sign of, gen of a genuine Christian. In some Pentecostal circles, speaking in tongues is considered essential. Oneness Pentecostals, like the United Pentecostal Church, for instance, uh, are almost essential to salvation. Paul says, no, the true test is what one confesses about Jesus, not what spiritual gift one has. In fact, there are diversity of gifts, as Paul will now explain. So let's look at that. The diversity of gifts here in verses 4 through 11. Paul now proceeds to zero on the specific problem of the Corinthians over emphasis on one gift. That's tongues. By emphasizing that there are a wide variety of manifestations of the one spirit within the church. In fact, Paul will begin by noting that that diversity within unity belongs to the character of God Himself. Although there is one Spirit, one Lord, and one God, a great variety of gifts and ministries characterize each of the divine persons. Such diversity in God manifests itself, Paul argues further, by distributing to many of the Corinthians different manifestations of the Spirit for the common good. Several of these are put forth in, as illustrations, as we'll see in verses 8 through 11. So now he affirms the idea that there is diversity of gifts. He says, verse 4, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of workings, but in all of them and in everyone it is the same God at work. Paul says, in effect, I want you to know that all who truly confess Jesus as Lord do so by the Holy Spirit, verse 3, and thus attest His presence in their lives. But, verse 4, he says there's actually a but there in the original language. That does not mean there are no distinctions to be made among them. Verses 4 through 6 seem to, intended to give the theological context within which all that follows is to be understood. Each verse begins with, different kinds, that is, varieties of spiritual gifts, making it clear that Paul's emphasis lies on diversity. Each usage of different gifts is followed by a noun that characterizes the activity of one person of the Trinity. The repetition of the same with each divine person seems to emphasize that one spirit 
Lord God manifests himself in a variety, great variety of gifts and ministries. Thus the unity of God does not imply uniformity in gifts, rather the one and the same God is responsible for the variety itself. I say given the flexibility of the language with Paul, one should probably not make too much of the different words used to describe the individual activities of the divine persons, gifts, services, and workings. Most likely there are simply three different ways of looking at what verse 7 calls manifestations of the Spirit. They could be gifts, they could be services, they could be workings. At the same time, however, the three nouns probably do reflect what for Paul would be a primary aspect of the three divine persons. Gifts would be associated with the Spirit. He'll say that definitively in just a moment. Service goes well with the Lord since the New Testament you have both Christ and his followers described as servants and workings nicely fits God as the last clause of verse six, verse 6 shows. This God is the one who works all things in all people. Obviously, you know, these have Trinitarian implications. That is, they, you know, they certainly support the idea of the Trinity of a Trinitarian triune God that we believe the rest of Scripture teaches. This certainly is part of that teaching. He says, now to the one, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. In verses 4 through 6, based, Paul bases his appeal for diversity in the nature of God as Trinity. Now Paul proceeds to explain how that diversity is worked out in the life of the church. This verse states his thesis, which is then illustrated by the representative examples in verses 8 through 10 and concluded in verse 11 by restatement of the concern of the verse, but with a slightly different emphasis. According to verse 7, every believer has received at least one gift from the Holy Spirit. Now to each one. So apparently that means that each of us has received at least one spiritual gift. First uh, Peter 4.10, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others, as faithful stewards of God's grace in his various forms. Dr. McCune, a uh, theology professor at uh, Detroit, he had this definition of a spiritual gift, and you'll see different ones, but I like this one. He says, a spiritual gift is a sovereign, God-given, Holy Spirit-energized ability, whether naturally inherited and used or miraculously endowed and used. So that's quite important there because you'll find different uh, views about spiritual gifts. So you'll see some definitions that say a spiritual gift is sort of a miraculously endowed kind of thing. But, you know, that doesn't seem to follow exactly if you look at the gifts like teaching. Or there's the gift of administration, is somehow some translated. Uh, it's not. It doesn't seem like when people get regenerated, they suddenly have the have a gift of teaching if they don't have any inclination at all. You know, they don't just go from one day they can't speak. They they're not they're not they don't talk logically. You know, they're not they're not really have much teaching ability. It's not that regeneration suddenly, 
they become fabulous world-class teachers. It doesn't seem to work that way. Uh, so that's why I think this definition is right in the sense that they are God-given, Holy Spirit-energized abilities. So, so the idea is that you know, some of these things we already have in our possession. We already have certain abilities, and when we're saved, the Spirit of God energizes those and, we can, and uses those uh, for the church, for the common good. Now, they can, they can be developed and they may be enhanced, you know, and so forth, but uh, it doesn't look like you go from nothing to everything simply by regeneration. We don't sort of see that kind of change. So I think this is good. They are Holy Spirit energized abilities, whether naturally inherited and used or miraculously endowed. It's true that tongues is a miraculously endowed kind of thing. So there are miraculous gifts. We some, you know, sometimes we'll separate these gifts into miraculous or supernatural and more natural kind of gifts. Sometimes it's hard to know where that dividing line is. Uh, whether naturally inherited or used and or miraculously endowed and used, whether temporary or permanent. So this definition suggests that some of the gifts were not permanent, like the gift of apostleship. Now, most, <clears throat> most Christians over the years, since the first century, <clears throat> have believed that uh, nobody's an apostle. But that's not true. <laughs> there are people who believe the gift of apostleship is still around today. Now, they kind of water it down a little bit. We'll see that in a moment. I'll, I'll, we'll look at some, mention some people who believe that there is the gift of apostleship. But that's not been common uh, that, uh, that uh, anyone would claim that. But some gifts do seem to be temporary, um, the miraculous gifts. Now, of course, our Pentecostal friends, our charismatic friends, would argue, they usually argue that all those gifts are available except apostleship maybe, but some include, you know, all of them like that. Um, miraculous gifts, uh, non-miraculous gifts, let me see here. Uh, non-miraculous gifts such as teaching require training and development. Miraculous gifts such as tongues are fully developed at the time of endowment. Gifts that are naturally inherited or energized at the time of salvation for service in the local church. Gifts are not for personal benefit, but for the common good, that is, to help others in the local church. The Spirit works in each member of the body, but differently in each member. So I like that definition. I can't say I can prove it. I'm just looking at, we're just looking at, Ken's just looking at what we see, what we find. This seems to be how things are. Spiritual gifts are one of the most are the important differences. Uh, one of the most important differences between Old and New Testament believers regarding the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual gifts are one of the most important differences between Old and New Testament believers regarding the Holy the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Only selected individuals in the Old Testament were given spiritual gifts. So, like Exodus twenty-eight. Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so he may serve me as priest. So God is saying, 
I've given certain individuals in Israel, and you know, and people who came out of the came out of Egypt, uh, special wisdom. I assume miraculously given to um, maybe uh, verse uh, Exodus thirty-one. See, I have chosen uh, Bezalel, son of Uri, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and all kinds of skills. Josh, uh, Deuteronomy 34, 9. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses laid his hands on him. So I assume these are, these are sort of miraculous gifts or abilities. But they were not given to everyone. But as I say, whereas every New Testament believer, according to what we read here, seems to have at least one spiritual gift. Now to each one, the manifestation of the gift is given. So to each one. So we assume every believer has at least one gift. Well, then Paul explains this diversity. To the one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. Having affirmed in verses 4 through 7 that there's a diversity of spiritual gift, Paul now explains what that diversity looks like. He lists nine gifts, but there does not appear to be any particular classification or ranking of gifts, except that in the two lists in 1 Corinthians, tongues is always last, probably because the Corinthians were making too much of the gift. These gifts are primarily representative, not exhaustive, since each other New Testament passages have different listings. So I, that's what I believe, and you'll find, uh, you know, <laughs> one of the favorite questions that over my years, I went to a lot of ordination councils, uh, and people, a young man, a person was up there ask, answering questions. And one of the favorite questions, I don't know, one question they always asked was, do you think the gifts lists are, are, are exhaustive, or are there other, you know, you know is, this, is this the limit of them, or are there others? And you'll get different answers. Some people will say, no, I think this is all the gifts. And others will say, uh, no, I think there may be others' gifts. But I, I don't necessarily think this is the limit of them. This is representative of the various gifts. And you can see by the list there, there's different ones in 1 Corinthians, Romans, and Ephesians, um, but with some overlap and so forth. Um, teachers is only... Teaching is given in Romans 12, and then you've got teachers there. Uh, pastors is only in Ephesians 4.11. Evangelist is only in 4.11. Now, in, in Ephesians, these seem to be gifted individuals rather than gifts. These are gifted people uh, mentioned, there, mentioned in Ephesians 4.11. Now, apostles are, are listed I mean, teachers are listed in 1 Corinthians 12, 20. I, I misspoke there. But uh, evangelists, I think that's the only listing in Ephesians 4, 11. Apostles, of course, in 1 Corinthians. Prophets and teachers uh, are there too. Uh, I say the message of wisdom and the message of knowledge um, are probably to be understood as miraculous gifts by which a speaker is given supernatural wisdom or knowledge from God to impart 
to a situation rather than more natural gifts given the fact that all the rest of the gifts in verses 8 through 10 are miraculous in nature. Um, so I think that's true. I think these messages of wisdom, messages of knowledge are more, yes. I think it's more emphasizes the gifted individuals. Yeah, so I, one thing I've heard, and, and I would love to, love to get your thoughts. Yeah. Some people have tried to say, like, 1 Corinthians 12 is mostly sign gifts, the miraculous gifts. That Romans 2 is like service gifts, and then Ephesians 4 is like office gifts. Would you think that's kind of arbitrary? I don't agree with that because okay. I don't think everything in Ephesians 4 is an office. Okay. I don't think there's any gift office of evangelists, for instance. Okay. Okay. But if you grew up in fundamentalism, you might have heard that the evangelist <laughs> there is an office of evangelists, and people say that. But I don't think there's any particular office. I think so there. What would you, how would you understand that evangelist there in Ephesians four? What would you see that as referring to? Uh, I take it more as a kind of a church planter. Okay. But uh, hold on, and maybe you'll hear some teaching on that shortly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not in this class, but somewhere else. You'll, you'll probably hear it. <laughs> you have to wait. When are you moving to? Uh, Friday. Oh, you won't hear it. <laughs> I'll send you a link. <laughs> okay. So yeah, it's a tough. It's it's tough. It's difficult, but uh, certainly apostle was an office. And apparent, we'll talk about prophets here. I'll talk about this in just a moment here. We'll get there. Um, so, um, um, I don't think it's Paul's purpose to identify the precise nature of the gifts here, but simply to emphasize the diversity. That's what he wants to emphasize. There's a diversity of gifts. Their concentration is on tongues as the great gift, the supreme gift, you know, the most important gift. They're fascinated with tongues. And Paul is trying to emphasize the diversity of gifts. Um, so he, he lists, uh, first of all, message of wisdom, message of knowledge, knowledge by means of the Spirit. As I say, I think these are probably supernatural gifts given. Now, why would you have something? I, I think... I don't know if I say this, but the, I mean, you can. I mean, I could see a reason for these in the early church because uh, you don't have any New Testament at this time. You don't really have any any direct. You have you, you have the direction of the apostles, but they don't have any New Testament books. At the time of First Corinthians, when First Corinthians was written about fifty six to eighty fifty six. It's hard to know whether other New Testament books were written. Some would say James was written maybe first. Some would say that, you know, but 50 or, you know, had they, did, would they have it? Or there weren't at least a lot of books around. So there wasn't a, a lot of guides except the oral, the teaching of the apostles themselves. So uh, this would give revelation from God, truth from God. Um, maybe about church, how to conduct church, questions in, in the church, and so forth. Verse 9, to another faith, to another faith by the same Spirit. 
to another the gifts, the gifts of healing uh, by that one spirit. I say here, faith is not the faith that all Christians have in Christ, since St. Paul implies that some Christians have it and others do not. So to a one is given faith, so that means not everyone is given faith. So this is not saving faith that uh, is imparted to us. This is uh, probably, I say, a special endowment of faith for accomplishing some task. A particular faith to believe something, to accomplish something. Uh, both terms in the gifts of healing are plural. It's technically gifts of healings. And that might suggest separate gifts to heal different diseases. That's, this is the only, we're only, I don't have any definitive proof of that. This is a common idea. Because Paul doesn't explain these, he just states them, you know. Verse 10, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguisher between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and still to another the interpretation of tongues. So miraculous powers, probably the ability to perform various kinds of miracles. Prophecy involves speaking the very words of God with authority equal to the Old Testament prophets and equal to the words of Scripture. Distinguishing between spirits was probably related to weighing of prophetic utterances to determine the true from the false. The devil and his demons have the powers to produce counterfeit miracles, as was seen by Moses and the Egyptian sorcerers and mentioned by Jesus. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Your name drive out demons and your name perform any miracles. So there's a gift to distinguish truth from false here, maybe. Uh, the nature of the gift of tongues is hotly debated. Are biblical tongues to be understood as real languages, or are, there, are they some sort of unintelligible speech or gibberish? This latter category, that is, that there's something unintelligible, just syllables repeated and so forth, and if you ever watch somebody speak in tongues, you've heard that. You know, that it's, they're kind of repeating syllables, and uh, it's often the same syllables kind of get a lot of repetition. If you watch, watch somebody speaking in tongues on TV or something, you'll see what it's like, or, or if you've been in a Pentecostal church. Um, so the latter, this latter category is sometimes called ecstatic speech. So you'll often say, are they real languages? Are they ecstatic speech? Uh, this is one of my little hobby horses here, so forgive me. The term ecstatic should be avoided since it describes the psychological state of the speech of the speaker. When someone ecstatic, they're, they're, they're in this, it's a, it really describes a psychological state, not the kind of speech produced. In other words, someone in an ecstatic state could produce coherent or incoherent speech. So it's, I just think it's best not to call it ecstatic speech, but it commonly is called ecstatic speech or something like that. But it's just uh, non-cognitive, uh, non at least as far as we can tell. It's not cognitive. What is relevant to our discussion is not the state of the one speaking the tongues, but the kind of speech produced. It's obvious to any unbiased observer that the so-called tongues of the modern Pentecostal and charismatic movements are simply unintelligible babblings. 
Many researchers have analyzed contemporary tongues from a purely linguistic point of view, and the consistent result is they cannot be considered any form of intelligible or cognitive language. What needs to be stressed is that the tongues of the charismatic movement bear no resemblance to the spiritual gifts in Acts 1 or 1 Corinthians 14. If it can be demonstrated that biblical languages were real language, biblical tongues were real languages, the inescapable conclusion is that modern tongues movement is no way a product of the Spirit of God. So I think you'll I think you'll find agreement that a Pentecostals would not claim that tongues are normal languages in any sense. That they're uh, it's it's very it's not hard to take an unknown language, any unknown language. Uh, missionaries do it all the time. Linguists do it all the time. They find people with a new language, and they learn to speak it. They under, learn to understand it because it conveys truth. It, it's it's cognitive. It's understandable. It's not just it's not just repetition of syllables. It actually has some 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 value, some cognitive value. Uh, it's a language. Um, and no one has been able to show that tongues, you know, can decipher tongues. Uh, there's no been no deciphering. Now, in, there are in Pentecostal churches, obviously, people who get up and say, this is what the person said. So there's an interpreter who will get up and say that. But it's not a real language in that sense. So if I could demonstrate that uh, the biblical tongues were real languages, then I think that would show that what, what Pentecostal or Pentecostal friends are doing is not really biblical tongues. Um, I say here, when the Bible talks about speaking in tongues in Acts and 1 Corinthians, the usual Greek word for tongue is glossa. That's the word for tongue. So we get words like glossary and so forth or... Um, in, in Attic Greek, it was two T's there, glota, glota. So it was like glottal or something like glottal stop. Or, uh, so uh, the, the Greek word is glosa. In these passages, glosa refers to languages, I'm arguing, not unintelligible gibberish. On the day of Pentecost, Luke says that the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, Acts 2.4. So Acts 2.4, that I've got it in bold there, the first word is glosa. They began to speak in other tongues, glosa. Because of Pentecost, a large number of Jews from all over the world who spoke their own native languages had come to Jerusalem. So that's no, there's no debate about that. This was the Feast of Pentecost. It was one of the feasts. In the Old Testament, every male of a certain age was supposed to come to Jerusalem for three feasts a year. This is one of them. And so people tried to do that. So we have at Pentecost people coming who come from other places speaking their own language. Uh, when the apostles spoke in tongues, each visitor to Jerusalem heard the apostles speaking in their own language, 
according to verse 6. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together and built them because each one heard their own language being spoken. Sometimes people will say, well, this is a miracle of hearing. No, it's not a miracle of hearing. It's a miracle of speaking. Uh, they heard their language being spoken. The language was actually spoken. It wasn't, some people have tried to interpret this, that the, the apostles just spoke in Aramaic or something and it was translated. No, that's not what the text says. At least it says their language was being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these speaking Galileans and so forth? Um, the word language used here is the Greek word dialectos. We get our word dialect. It's commonly translated language. So you notice they're speaking in tongues, but verse 6, they heard in their own language. So those are used synonymously here, to get, uh, interchangeably. Uh, the apostles were speaking real languages. Those who heard the apostles speaking in tongues stated explicitly, each of us hear them speak, hear them in our own native dialect, or dialectos, our own language. And we hear them declaring the words of God in our own tongues. So uh, verse 11, we hear them. So they're using tongues and language interchangeably in verse in Acts chapter 2. I say here the Greek word glossa generally denotes two things in Greek. The physical organ itself, the tongue, physical organ, or normal language or speech. There is absolutely no example, no example, either in the New Testament itself or in all of Greek literature outside the New Testament where glossa is used of unintelligible, incoherent, gibberish, ecstatic speech, which the charismatic movement claims is biblical tongues. God created Adam and Eve with the ability to communicate with the language. There was apparently one language until the Tower of Babel. Oh, there, are, there are many different languages in the world. They all convey objective, coherent, intelligible meaning. As new languages have been discovered in remote areas of the world over the past 200 years, though unknown to outsiders initially, they are all real languages conveying objective, coherent, intelligible meanings. I say again, the tongues of the Pentecostal and Charismatic are not real languages. If we consider the history of the church, we find the gift of tongues was universally considered to be supernatural ability to speak in authentic foreign languages that the speaker had not learned. So, for example, an early church father, uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, uh, they spoke with foreign tongues, not those of their native land. And the wonder was great, a language spoken by those who had not learned it. And the sign is to them that believe not, and not to them that believe, that it may be in accusation of the unbelievers, as is written, with other tongues and with other lips I will speak to this people. Not even so will they listen to me, says the Lord. John Chrysostom, famous church father, again, commenting on 1 Corinthians 14, he says, and as many, uh, and as in the time of the building of the Tower of Babel, tower, the one tongue was divided into many, so when the many tongues frequently met 
in the one man, the same person used to used to discourse both in Persian and in the Roman and the Indian and many other tongues, the Spirit signing within him. And the gift was called the gift of tongues because he could all at once speak diverse languages. Augustine said, in the earliest times, the Holy Ghost fell on them that believed and they spoke with tongues, which they had not learned as the Spirit gave them utterance. These were signs adapted to the times, for it was necessary for them to be that sign of the Holy Spirit in all, the to all tongues, to show that the gospel of God was to run through all tongues over the whole earth. Now, the, the key here, I mean, one key here is these people don't have any gift of tongues in their age. They don't, nobody is claiming this gift for when, when they're alive here. John Calvin says there was a difference between the knowledge of tongues and the interpretation of them. For those who were endowed with the former, that is the gift of tongues, were in many cases not acquainted with the language of the nation of which they had to deal. The interpreters rented foreign languages into, native, into the native language. These endowments they did not at the time acquire by labor or study, but were in possession of them by wonderful revelation of the Spirit. I say, in reaching this conclusion, the church fathers equated the, the tongues of Acts 2 with the tongues of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, insisting that in both places the gift consisted of the ability to speak genuine languages. All Protestants agreed that tongues and other miraculous gifts ceased with the apostolic age. Maybe that all is too much, but it's, it's pretty much what everybody, you know, if you look at church history, and you look at you know what's going on. They all they all agree. Protestants agreed that, in, 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 in after the after the Reformation, that these gifts had ceased and they were not around. The modern belief in the gift of tongues began with the founding of Pentecostalism, at the beginning of the 20th century. Credit for for it is is called the rediscovery of the gift of tongues. Is com, uh, the credit for this is commonly given to. Charles Parham, here he is on the left, a holiness preacher and faith healer who ran a Bible school in Topeka, Kansas. Now, uh, remember Pastor Ken says that he uh, had, came from a holiness background, but he actually came from a holiness Pentecostal background. But um, so, um, in the 1800s, there developed, uh, well, especially in, in, in the Methodist Church, um, the teaching of John Wesley. Remember, Wesley taught, had a belief in perfection, that it was possible for a Christian to obtain perfection. They could uh, become fully sanctified and not sin. Uh, this teaching of his really caught on in America. Francis Asbury and others spread it in the late 1700s, early 1800s, and it became an important part of Methodism. You know, this holiness, this teaching of of uh, he called perfect love or Christian perfection or whatever. Now he remember he qualified it quite a bit. Uh, when he said you don't sin, he meant you don't commit any known sin. You know, he said uh, if you don't know you're sinning, you haven't really sinned. He, so he redefined Wesley redefined sin 
uh, in an unbiblical way, unfortunately. But he said you don't commit any known sin. You don't, you're not, you're not doing any known sin. Um, and this teaching was very prominent um, in the Methodist Church, but in the, about the middle, about 1850 on, 1860 on, the Methodists themselves sort of kind of gave up on this teaching. I'm not sure exactly why they did. Methodism was the largest denomination in America in the 1800s. It was the most popular denomination, the biggest denomination. And it became very powerful, wealthy people. And some people say that because, of their, because it became the religion of wealthy and sophisticated people, that they didn't they didn't, they didn't favor this perfection and this kind of teaching and so forth. Um, but it, it was still was extremely popular. Um, it, was, it was believed that you got this by an act of faith, sort of by an act of dedication. You could dedicate yourself you could, by an act of faith, and you could, you could reach this state of perfection. And, you know, Pastor Ken has mentioned that his uncle, when he took over the church, said that, you know, he didn't sin. He never sinned, you know. <laughs> and you could meet people. I've met people who said, no, I don't, I don't sin, because that's the teaching. Of, that was a holiness teaching. And uh, so this, the Methodists kind of gave up on it, and so there, there were formed holiness denominations, uh, denominations that were just uh, given over to this holiness teaching. The Salvation Army was, not, was given over to this, uh, the Wesleyan Church was given over to this. Uh, they, they had, John Wesley, you can imagine, Holiness Church. Now today, I, most of those churches don't emphasize, even them don't emphasize it to the degree that it was back then, I don't think. But it's still, if, it's still, if you look at the Methodist Church, you'll still see a reference to that uh, belief, and it's there, and then the Holiness Churches. Church of the Nazarene is one of the largest Holiness Churches. And uh, so this Pentecostalism we're talking about came out of the, really came out of the holiness churches. And so this man, Charles Parham, was a holiness preacher. That is, he was in the holiness movement and so forth and so on. And um, he had this school in Topeka, Kansas. There's a long story here. I say beginning in 1901, he and his students spoke in tongues that was on like January the 1st. They read Acts and they said, we should be able to do this. And some of the students began to speak in tongues. Uh, they claimed that these tongues were real languages because they read Acts 2 as real languages and they assumed 1 Corinthians must be real languages too. Here's Charles Parham, cited in the Topeka State Journal, 19, January 7, 1901, the Lord will give us the power of speech to talk to people of the various nations without having to study them in schools. Here he is in January 27th. A part of our labor will be to teach the church the useless of spending years of time preparing missionaries for work in foreign lands when all they have to do is ask God for power. Um, Parham eventually landed in Houston, Texas. Got that misspelled wrong, don't I? Um, 
Houston, Texas, in 1905, where African-American uh, preacher named William Seymour, that's him on the right there, accepted Parham's teaching on the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. In 1906, Seymour accepted the call to pastor a holiness church in Los Angeles on Azusa Street. For over three years, the Azusa Street Apostolic Faith Mission conducted three services a day, seven days a week, where thousands of seekers received the Holy Spirit. Word of the revival was spread abroad through the apostolic faith. A paper that Seymour sent free of charge to some 50,000 subscribers. From Azusa Street, the revival spread throughout the United States. Holiness leaders from the Church of God in Christ, Memphis, Tennessee, the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, and the Pentecostal Holiness Church, Georgia and the Carolinas, were present at Azusa and carried its message back to their churches. Uh, 38 missionaries were sent out to countries like India and China, thinking that they would be able to evangelize the native speakers in their own language through the use of the miraculous tongues. All utterly failed. This eventually led to the idea that modern tongue speaking was not like that in Acts, but in 1 Corinthians. So I should mention that, uh, like Pastor Ken, when he, was, uh, when he went to college, what did he say? He stayed one day at, at Cleveland <laughs> Church at, uh, at uh, what's, the name of the, uh, church, what's the name of the college in Cleveland? I can't think of the name of the college now. Uh, I should know because I went to school about 30 miles from it in Chattanooga. <laughs> But anyway, the, the, they have a school in Cleveland. And so the Church of God, uh, Cleveland, Tennessee, there's you know, a number of denominations that call themselves Church of God. Church of God, Cleveland, and these holiness churches, they added another work of grace to their theology. So they believed you were saved. That was the first work of grace. And then you were sanctified. That was... You, became, you reached the state of sanctification uh, where you didn't commit any known sin and so forth. Well, then when this tongues came along, they added a third work, the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And uh, some denominations, as I say, will almost say, well, you're not probably really a Christian if you're not speaking in tongues. Most don't say that. They just say you don't have it. Remember, Pastor Ken said his mother never got the gift of tongues. <laughs> his poor mom never got it, you know. But she was in the church. She was the pastor's wife, but she, she never got it. And Ken never got it. Unfortunately, you know, we'd like to, you know, wish he had got it because he could demonstrate it for us. But he never got it. His mother never got it. So they had this three works of grace in these holiness churches. They had saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Baptism and filling are the same thing. Three. Now, <clears throat> there was a Baptist preacher in Chicago who went out to Azusa. And he got it. He got the baptism. But he comes back. But he starts a movement that he doesn't believe in that holiness doctrine of perfection. So he's only got two works of grace. He's got you're saved and then you got the baptism. That denomination today is called the Assemblies of God. <laughs> the Assemblies of God only have two works of grace. 
They don't have that holiness doctrine in the assembly of God. So they're not a holiness denomination. They went straight from, you know, just a Baptist guy to a Pentecostal group, but they don't have that, that, that third, that in-between, the, the perfection group. I say here, although it's universally uh, agreed that the tongue speaking in Acts consisted of real languages today, Pentecostals and Charismatics believe that tongues in 1 Corinthians were not the same as in Acts, uh, as in Acts simply... I don't know what I'm saying there. We're not the same as in Acts, but I guess simply syllables that are not real languages. I guess I should have a but there or something. Um, their only support for such a position, and this is a widely held position. I don't doubt that at all. Uh, their only support for such a position is some verses in 1 Corinthians that they believe cannot be understood of real languages. For example, in 14.2, Paul says, For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. So they say, aha, here it is. It's not a real language. This is understood to mean that people cannot understand these languages. Thus, they cannot be actual human languages as in Acts. But such an interpretation fails to comprehend the context of Paul's statement, I think. Paul means that no person in the Corinthian church would normally understand the language spoken by the tongue speaker since it would be foreign to the Corinthians who spoke Greek. And I'll talk about that when we get to 14. That is, if one speaking in tongues was speaking in Hebrew, he would in effect only have been understood by God since none of the congregation would have known Hebrew. The only language that the people in Corinth would generally know would be Greek. That was their native language. It's also said that tongues in 1 Corinthians are different from those in Acts because an interpreter was needed at Corinth, but none was needed at Pentecost. However, the word translated interpret in 1 Corinthians is the common word meaning translate from one language to another, like in Acts 9.36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tapatha, which translated, which interpreted, same word means Dorcas. The reason an interpreter or translator was needed at Corinth is that the people there spoke only Greek. But on the day of Pentecost, there were people from every nation who could understand the various languages being spoken. I say here, Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, is sometimes understood to mean tongues are heavenly and in fact unintelligible. I don't think that's true. I say a study of the structure of 13, 1 through 3, show that Paul is speaking hypothetically and hyperbolically. Hyperbole is a figure of speech to exaggerate. Like if I say, if you say to your kid, if I've told you once, I've told you 10,000 times to clean that room. Well, we don't, you know, you're not lying when you say, if I told you once, I told you a thousand times. We don't say you're lying. We just, that's exaggeration. That's hyperbole. So I think that's what we have here. Paul is speaking hypothetically and hyperbolically. He means that even if I could speak with tongues of men and angels, you know, even if I could speak, this is parallel in verse 2, if I had the gift of prophecy can fathom all mysteries. Paul no more spoke with the gift of tongues of angels than he could fathom all ministry. It means even if I had the gift of prophecy and I could fathom. Paul's only using exaggeration, you know, even if I could. If I could do those things, I'd still be nothing without love. That's the point. If I could do all those things. There is every reason I say here to believe 
that the gift of tongues, I think, Paul describes in 1 Corinthians, is the same phenomenon his friend Luke describes in Acts. Now, I admit, our Pentecostal friends are not going to admit to that. They're going to obviously argue that they're different. Luke was one of Paul's co-workers. He wrote Acts a few years after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. The exact same Greek words are used in both places. In Acts, tongues is associated with foreign languages, and in 1 Corinthians, Paul associates tongues with all sorts of languages in the world. I think there's every reason to believe that those who spoke in tongues in the time of the apostles spoke real languages. It's just as certain that the tongues of the modern charismatic movement are not languages and therefore are not in any way, I don't think, the product of the Holy Spirit giving a miraculous ability. So that was all to say about tongues there, but then uh, in verse 10, the interpretation of tongues then refers to the miraculous ability to translate speaking in tongues to a language understood by the church. Now Paul, we see that he explains that diversity, now he summarizes it. All these are the work of the one and the same Spirit, verse 11, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. This verse simply argues what Paul has said up to this point. Each person has received at least one gift, and these gifts come from the Holy Spirit who sovereignly distributes them according to what he determines is needed for the church. So I don't think you can pray and ask for a certain gift. Uh, I think this says that the Spirit distributes them as He determines, as the, He thinks the church needs the gifts, He distributes them. Now He does that, obviously, by bringing people into the church and so forth. Then we have the illustration of the body here in verses 12 through 31. Uh, he's going to illustrate this diversity. So, again, the big point here is diversity. It's not really a textbook on tongues. It's not a textbook on spiritual gifts, you know. We'd like to have a systematic theology of spiritual gifts, but that's not what we have here. We just have Paul uh, trying to get them to see that tongues is not the, the most important gift and to see that there is diversity of gifts and they're all needed. They're all important. Some may seem to be unimportant. They not, may not seem to be very important. Uh, we tend to exalt the, what we think of the greater gifts. So Paul is going to talk about this. The church, like the human body, is one. Just as the body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. The last, Christ, last clause, so it is with Christ, is shorthand for the church as the body of Christ. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you, verse 27, is part of it. So it is with the body of Christ, he's saying. The physical body has many limbs and organs, and despite their number and differences, they still make up one body. So also the Christ body, the church, has many limbs and organs, and despite their differences, they make up one body. Verse 13, For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we're all given the one spirit to drink. 
Paul now explains how we, he includes himself as different individuals, are all part of the one body of Christ. The body of Christ is a spiritual organism that is formed by Holy Spirit baptism. The verb baptize literally means you know, to dip or to immerse. And it's commonly used in its literal sense in the New Testament for water baptism. It also means to immerse in a figurative or metaphorical sense. The idea being to be immersed or initiated into an experience of some kind, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 10 too. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Mark 10, 38. Jesus says, Can you drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with the... Uh, more fully, that passage talks about on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus took the twelve aside told them what was going to happen. He's going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered up. They will condemn him to death. He will hand him over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, spit on him, flog and kill him. Three days later, he'll rise. Then James and John came to him, Teacher, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? That's the, or we're talking about the metaphorical idea. Can you experience, can you have this experience that I'm going to have? <laughs> uh, you know, which really is his crucifixion and so forth. Um, I say the exact expression by one spirit here, for by one spirit, we are all baptized. Um, uses the Greek preposition in, translated by here. Um, as in Acts 1, uh, 4 through 5, Jesus predicted that this same spirit baptism was yet future. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my spirit promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I think this is exactly the same idea as in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. The word with, with the Holy Spirit, um, that is back in Acts 1, 5, John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The word with there is the same preposition in that we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It's a tiny little preposition that has a lot of different meanings, translated a lot of different, but it, it's you know, with or in, it has some uh, by, a lot of different meanings. The NIV marginal note uh, gives the alternate translation in. You should be baptized in. Or, or, you know. This spirit baptism first occurred on the day of Pentecost. This is not spelled out in Acts 2. Doesn't say it's the first time, but I think it, it indicates that pretty definitely in Acts 11, 15 through 16, in his explanation of the conversion of Cornelius. That was that what Jesus promised in Acts 1, 4 through 5 first occurred on Pentecost. Remember, Peter in Acts 10 goes to the house of Cornelius. And as he's speaking the gospel, the Holy Spirit falls on these people while he's preaching and they speak in tongues. 
And then they say, well, who can refuse that we can baptize these people? I mean, Peter's amazed. These are Gentiles. They're not Jews. You know, they're not Samaritans. They're not half Jews. They're just... And while he's speaking, there's clear evidence they're regenerated because they're speaking in tongues. The Holy Spirit's fallen on them. And he says, he says, and, he go, and then he has to go, he has to, he gets called on the carpet. So he goes back to Jerusalem and they say, hey, what are you doing? Preaching to a bunch of lousy Gentiles up there. He said, well, here's what happened, man. I was up there speaking and the Holy Spirit, you know, came on these people. And I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He remembered Acts, you know, 1 there. So if God gave them the gift He gave us who believed in the Holy Spirit, who was I to think I could stand in God's way? So with the Holy Spirit uses the same preposition in, and again, the NIV marginal note gives the alternate translation in. Uh, so Peter, I think, it's pretty good evidence that Peter is referring to Jesus' words in Acts 1.5 when he says, when I, when, what happened to Cornelius was what happened to us on the day of Pentecost. Now, how do I get that? Well, because he says, when what happened to Cornelius, I remembered what Acts 1, 4, and 5 said. I remembered that Jesus said, uh, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and that happened on the day of Pentecost. Acts 1, 4, and 5, Jesus predicted Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming there. And here in, in Acts 10, Peter is looking back, looking at Cornelius and says, that's exactly what Jesus predicted. It's, it's what happened to us. So he's saying they got what we got on the day of Pentecost. Um, so Peter makes it clear, referring to Jesus' words in Acts 1, 5, that spirit baptism took place on the day of Pentecost. So I think, it, it seems reasonable to believe that uh, this baptism he's talking about took place on the day of Pentecost for the first time. Finally, I say the words we were all given one spirit to drink indicates that as a result of being saved, we all experience the benefits and blessings of the spirit, including spiritual gift. This comes because at the same time we are placed in the body of Christ, we're also indwelt by the spirit and experiential work. We, we get regenerated, we're indwelt by the spirit, we have spiritual gifts. Okay, I've gone over here, so we better stop there for tonight, and we'll come back to that next time, Lord willing. So you say you're leaving this week, Friday? Okay, well...